Hello, and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. For no reason at all, I've decided that today, which is, it's been five years, Remus. Did you know that? It's our anniversary. Five year oh, anniversary. Oh, I didn't realize today was our anniversary. Well, it would have been, it's July. Our first episode came out in July 2017. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, I have decided that today is the day I'm going to wing it and not look at our script. So let's see if I can remember it. <clears throat> All right. Hello, and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. On Di- Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical, educational, and theoretical contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools as well as educational, alternative educational settings. Um, I have graphic novels out and I self-publish and work with publishers. Mm-hmm. And you also have a master's degree. I do have a master's degree in arts <laughs> education. <laughs> and I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Uh, I do my exam soon, which is frightening, frightening to me. Ooh. Um, I also have a master's in English from UF, and my research focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics and zines and museum studies, and I also primarily make self-published comics. Good job. You basically got it. Thanks. I forgot my credentials, and it's funny how I don't, like, ever sit around thinking about having a master's degree. It, like, isn't, right. it, like, never comes up in my mind, but I always want to say it so people are like, who's this jerk? Why do I, should I listen to her? So, <laughs> Right. It's not bragging. It's just us sort of being like, here's what we do research. Yeah. <laughs> <Here's how> we- <laughs> We've researched before. <laughs> Five years of it, in fact. Yeah. Uh, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, but part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast with you is so I could practice research for grad school. Yeah. Um, which is very fun. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying we're smarter than anyone else and that we deserve to be listened to more than anyone else. We just happen to have spent some time with these topics. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Is that fair? Yeah, I think that makes lots of sense. All right, sick. Sick. So um, this is this is my episode that I'm leading today. Yeah, uh, I've come in cold, baby. I got nothing. <laughs> Right. So this is going to be fun. Um, So today we are talking about um, a few. I want to talk about the role of art and how it was used in HIV AIDS activism by HIV AIDS activists. Mm. Um, this, this, This topic sort of comes from I actually in spring of 2021, I taught a special topics class um, on HIV AIDS art and activism. And uh, special topics is just my school has in the English department for undergraduates. There's uh, there's three classes that basically um, the format of the class is set, but the subject can be like anything. So we, the graduate instructors who teach that class, are allowed to pitch an idea. And if um, they approve the idea that you've pitched you can design that class and lead it. So it's really fun because you kind of get to build it from scratch. When you um, say format, does that just mean like you have to write it two essays and something like that? Sort of, yeah. So all of the undergraduate writing classes at UF, with one exception, are 6,000 word classes. So there's like a word, like a m- amount of words you have to write. Um, but like, it, basically, it's just sort of like whether the folk, like I, I did two special topics. The first one I did was... Um, 
the the special the general idea was topics in American lit. So that was a class that was very like people just picked different things that were relevant to American literature and you sort of mm. got to do a deep dive on that. And then the this one, this AIDS activism class that I taught was um vaguely called writing about blah 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 okay so it was more writing focused whereas like the american lit class is more literature focused but like we still did a lot of reading and stuff okay um yeah and so the way that i did it was um it it, like i said it was about aids activism and art um and i'm gonna say like aids activism is like a shorthand uh it's like a hard it's like hard to like put into like a snappy phrase but essentially i'm referring to um the sort of period from the early 80s through the late 90s sort of um before the advent of azt um which was sort of a peak period of queer organizing specifically in response to the aids crisis and epidemic Mm. right so not saying that AIDS isn't still an ongoing issue, not saying that queer activism doesn't extend after or before, right? But this was sort of the scope that I was looking at um, that is sort of considered like the peak organizing years for this particular crisis in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so I wanted to sort of give a little context. The way I'm sort of doing this is I actually... I couldn't cover everything in an entire semester. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to cover everything in, like, a single podcast episode that's about an hour long, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I have four sort of pieces that I want to talk about, two of which are comics, actually, because I really want to talk about um, how comics were used in particular. Um, But I do want to give a little bit of context for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with this history, um, that the first cases of HIV-AIDS in the U.S., were reported in June of 1981. Initially, the mainstream press referred to AIDS as GRID, which stood for gay-related immune deficiency, um, because initially people weren't sure what caused it. It it just seemed that, like, predominantly gay men were being affected. Mm. Um, And obviously, lots of homophobia involved in that, right? so it later got renamed to AIDS, which is, you know, autoimmune deficiency syndrome, right? Um, people realize that it is it is primarily transmitted through sexual content that, contact. That's not the only way. Um, other populations, particularly uh, lower income black and brown populations, Haitian immigrants, um, intravenous drug users were also really heavily impacted. But the majority of like mainstream news coverage focused on predominantly gay men right oh well i i think it's important it's it's part of why i was happy to hear you wanted to do this episode remus was actually watching what the communication that's happening about monkeypox right now actually yes have you noticed this yeah i was actually just reading about that this morning um yes it is very similar like this um uh, and the CDC is tr- trying, right? Yes. But they they're trying to communicate that uh, monkeypox is um, can be uh, transmitted through bodily fluids and skin to skin contact, and they're seeing it a lot in men who have sex with men populations. Right. 
And so they're trying to f- communicate that. And, you know, it's sort of uh, spooky to see um, <laughs> how far they haven't come in communicating this. Yeah, I I was. Yeah, there's been some real discussions about the ways in which communications around monkeypox echo mm-hmm. um, communications around HIV AIDS. And it's challenging because on the one hand, you do want to acknowledge what populations are higher risk so that mm-hmm. they can get protection, right? But it does fall back into that pattern of like s- stigmatizing, right? Or yeah. like... Re- or like not acknowledging the fact that it's not solely specific to that group so that the, so that it minimizes like it, it kind of implies that other people can't get it which is also dangerous yeah it isn't an std but they talk about it as if it were an std right so it yeah so definitely and also honestly like a lot of the early the reason i originally pitched this class i mean i wanted to do this class because there were specific texts i wanted to teach that's usually how i designed a class is i would be like i really want to teach this book and then i would just like theme around that mm-hmm. um but also because uh the handling of covid really echoes a lot of the failures of the u.s government and the handling of hiv aids mm-hmm. obviously the difference there is that covid isn't it wasn't ever considered to be, tra- you know, is it considered to be transmitted sexually and also like affects, there's not like one, the populations that are more at risk aren't like queer, like queer isn't a factor in that necessarily. So, um, but like one of the things that my students really found is like, as we were sort of going through and like seeing how the things that the the queer activists were responding to was a lot of like, oh, this feels really similar to mm. how badly this has been handled, right? Mm-hmm. Um so some very interesting resonances there as well. Um, by So like I said, first cases were reported in 81. By 1990, about uh, 100,777 deaths from the AIDS had been reported to the CDC. Um, that number now is much higher. I don't have that off the top of my head. Let me look it up. Um, and I'm focusing again on the U.S. If you look higher than that if you look outside of the u.s obviously the number is like in the millions and millions but um let me see if i can find so like i said by 1990 um we're looking at a hundred thousand roughly deaths that have been reported right Mm. um by uh 2000 let's see the approximate total worldwide death count was in was six million Mm. um so we're looking at i can't find the cumulative number right now and i don't want to like take too much time but basically we're talking about millions of people that died in the u.s alone and then like many more millions outside of the u.s Mm. right if you look at everything um and that's really important context also because again uh, in the context of the U.S., many, like so many of those people were queer that essentially an entire generation of queer folks were wiped out, right? Um, and that resulted in a loss of history, that resulted in a loss of culture um, that I think we are still reckoning with. Um, this is this, this is something I'm, I, 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 I work on a little bit as part of my, like, uh, research because I work with like contemporary trans artists um, but part of that is like recognizing that like 
I am from a generation that was born sort of like at the end of what is considered the height of the crisis in the U.S., right? Um, So like a lot of folks have grown up without, like not having that connection to history Mm. because of that massive loss of life, right? Mm. Um, Which isn't to say that everything has gone forever. You know, I'm going to talk about all the ways that a lot of stuff is preserved and people are still doing this important work, but... Um, I do think that's really important context to just sort of be aware of um, this like sheer scale of death um, that was caused. Um, so in 1987, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, also known as ACT UP, was formed. Um, and ACT UP is one of the main uh, interlockers, sort of like when people think of AIDS activism, they often think of ACT UP. They weren't the only group, but they were sort of like this big group, right, that like a Mm -hmm. lot of other groups sprung out of. Um, So I want to talk super briefly about AIDS activism. I have a couple couple things I want to read from an article called AIDS Activism by Jeffrey W. Bateman. Um, And this is something that I gave to my students as sort of like an overview fact sheet, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So quoting... Although it quickly became apparent that other groups were also susceptible to this disease, the association between gay culture and AIDS remained strong, prompted heating debates in the gay press. Writers for newspapers such as Gay Community News in Boston and The New York Native wrote fervently about the causes and implications of the new disease. They were the first voices of a new activism that would consume the gay community and its resources for much of the next decade. Activism in response to the AIDS crisis was expressed in artistic and cultural terms, as well as in more traditional political terms. A distinguished body of literature, art, dance, poetry, music, film, and performance art kept the disease in the public eye and gave expression to the gay community's sense of rage, pain, and loss. Um, So I wanted to read that for two reasons. One, I want to highlight the importance of the gay press, particularly in the context of a comics podcast, because... There still is, although it's different now, it's mostly online, but, like, there has always, since the 40s, 50s, really, there has been a really vibrant, grassroots gay press, uh, primarily in, like, larger urban centers, but, like, if you look, you can find examples of this anywhere uh, in the North America, um, magazines, pamphlets, Uh, small organizations, zines, right? People were making and producing magazines um, that were, that had articles written by gay, like LGBTQ writers, had photographs, had art, had all of this stuff. um, And that was a a big part of gay culture formation, right? During Mm -hmm. this time. Um, And actually, the reason I want to highlight that is because like a lot of queer comic artists got started in these grassroots, um, magazines like Alison Bechtel's work was originally published in like I want to say Village Voice but like a lot of these like grassroots New York magazines and that's sort of like how she got into being a comic artist so like Mm. there's a really interesting um cultural like these sort of grassroots non-mainstream non-commercial publications that were just done by the community were a venue for a lot of art right Mm. in addition to a lot of like 
early academic writing and periodical writing. Like sometimes uh, if I'm like, I remember I was reading a, a magazine. I forget which one. It was one of the New York ones. And it was like the 90s. And there was just an article by Judith Butler in there. <laughs> like, you know, young Judith Butler. Like, it, it, you know, it's just like very cool that like this was such a a, a formative part of uh, gay culture, um, mm. particularly, again, in sort of the U.S. and Canada. Um, I'm not super familiar with Europe, unfortunately, but or elsewhere. But um, then also uh, the reason I frame this class around activism and art um, is that and again, this isn't unique to AIDS activism, but it is something that's really central, is that art was a huge part of it. Like, um, performance art, uh, textile art, comics, like, all of these things were, like, central to the political work that these groups were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is really valuable, um, but also, like, a really interesting model for us to look at, right? Because we have talked about how, like, how do you use art and activism, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you work these things together? And so now I'm going to talk about some examples. <laughs> awesome. Um, before, before I jump in, do you have any, like, questions or comments about anything I just said? Um, so you just gave us a quick overview of the history yeah. of... Um, so I'm, I'm excited to go into specifics. Cool. Okay. So I wanted to start with uh, a piece that is very well known, um, which is the NAMES AIDS Memorial Quilt, also sometimes called the National AIDS Memorial Quilt or just the AIDS Memorial Quilt. Um, have you heard of the quilt before, Kathy? Have you ever? No. No. Okay. So this is a piece that was originally conceived by activist Cleve Jones in 1985. Um if I recall correctly, he was on a march in San Francisco honoring Harvey Milk, who was a gay politician who was assassinated, right? Um, and at the end of the march, people had made, like, signs, and they had put all the signs up, and Cleve thought that it kind of looked like a patchwork quilt, the way the signs mm. were. And that inspired him to start this project. So it began in 1987, and the idea is pretty simple. Anyone can make a quilt um, square. And the squares all honor a person or persons who have died of AIDS. Um, and they put the quilt together. So there's, and, and I'll talk a little bit about how the quilt exists now, but there's this big quilt that has all of these folks memorialized. Mm. Um, many people who died of AIDS did not receive act like memorials or funerals um, because of their marginalized status, right? A lot of them were ostracized from their family. The community didn't have resources to afford you know, a memorial. Um, mm. So the quilt was a way that someone could honor, memorialize their loved ones, their friends, their community, um, relatively accessibly. Uh, you don't have to know. Like, they were very clear, and you, it still says this on the website, like, you don't have to know how to sew. It doesn't have to be fancy. You can just, like, glue fabric to the square. Like, um, so the the there's a range of, like, technique and skill also involved here. Cool. Um the first showing of the quilt took place on October 11th in 1987 during uh, the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights. So this was a huge march that took place. Um, they unveiled the quilt at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Like they spread it out. Um, it covered a space larger from the football field and included 1,920 panels, mm. um, which is a fact I took from the website for the quilt. Mm. Um 
Today, the quilt now has nearly 50,000 panels and is considered the largest community arts project in history. Um, And they still do accept panels. So, like, if you go to their website, there are instructions on, like, how to make a panel and then how to mail it in so it can be added to the quilts. Um, And uh, so this is obviously, I mean, I love this piece. Um... Because I think it's, you know, a beautiful example of community arts and uh, a memorial, right? So it's a textile piece. Um, textile is also a medium that is often sort of overlooked, right? Or treated mm-hmm. as frivolous. Um, and it really, I mean, it's just beautiful work. And it's so amazing to look at it and see all of these people who might have who like we might not you know we might not ever get to know about right because they weren't necessarily like exceptionalized or memorialized but they get to be sort of have their memory preserved in this format and Mm -hmm. um the according to the website the quilt has nearly um uh 110,000 names sewn into the panels um and if you go to the website and we'll put a link in the description for this the entire quilt is now digitized and you can use their viewer to look just look at it i mean it's huge so you can just zoom in and just start like looking at names um they have a pdf on how to the national aids memorial quilt i have a link in the the notes for this episode too kathy if you want to look at it it's aidsmemorial.org yeah um during non-pandemic times the quilt does travel they take it around the u.s um and i think they also take it internationally sometimes um i don't know Mm. if it's been travel i don't know if it has since started traveling it wasn't traveling when i taught this course in 2021 um but uh, the National AIDS Memorial, who handles the preservation of this quilt, also does a lot of really important work. Um, uh, they do a lot. They're actually doing a lot of work right now, too, around, like, black trans people and memorializing black trans people who have been lost to violence. Um, so it's a great project. And again, just, like, the sheer volume of it, uh, one, makes you really aware of the scale of death um that the community experienced but also again i think it is really like touching and beautiful to just see you know all how much love goes into you know the people who love these people making these panels for them um and sharing them i think is really beautiful Mm. um so that is the memorial quilt like i said that's one of the bigger um more visible uh pieces to come out of AIDS activism and you'll see actually a lot of the pieces I'm talking about have a lot to do with visibility this is sort of a um focus of art in this era uh from queer artists because um again AIDS was so stigmatized and queer you know queer people were so stigmatized that it really was a big deal to break through and make visibly in very public ways the realities of this right because it was very kept out of the mainstream um mm-hmm. media i mean um so oh, beautiful oh well, i'm just looking at the, the piece now mm-hmm. and what's i think very valuable is just the sheer size of it yeah and then as you zoom in uh 
there's just all these messages of love. Mm-hmm. I don't want yeah. to tear up. No. <laughs> this this work this kind of work makes me very emotional. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, the second it's I, I I have a couple of specific pieces, but I wanted to talk a little more generally about um, Grand Fury. Um, I don't know, Kathy, if you're familiar with Grand Fury at all. It's, I'm not. Yeah, that's fine. Cool. So Grand Fury is a agiprop art activist group that formed out of ACT UP. So agiprop means basically like agitation propaganda. Like the point is to make stuff that is disruptive in the public eye, right? The point is to mm-hmm. make stuff that people have to sort of contend with. Um so Grand Fury was an artist collective, right? They na- they took their name from the Plymouth Automobile favored by the New York City Police Department, um, which I love. I think that's very fun. <laughs> um, so again, I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but also huge connection between a lot of this like AIDS activism work that's going on and like abolitionist movements, right? Uh, because being queer was heavily criminalized, right? Right. Um, so an important part of activism was understanding that like the the legal system is oppressive and racist and designed to um, destroy lives in the name of white supremacy. Um, uh-huh. So um, Grand Fury... Uh, their first show was in 1987. They officially founded in 1988. Uh, like a lot of groups in ACT UP, this was a very like sort of decentralized group of people that were just like, hey, we want to work on, like, this is the project we want to work on, right? Like a lot of little groups sort of sprung up in ACT UP like this. Um, so their first show was called Let the Record Show um, that debuted in November 20th, 1987 and ran through January 24th, 1988. Uh, so around the same time that the quilt was starting, right? Mm. Um, I'm going to read uh, just the description from the New York Public Library archives for Let the Record Show. Um, Let the Record Show featured images of six individuals accompanied by concrete plaques carved with their quotes regarding AIDS, silhouetted against a backdrop of the Nuremberg trials, uh, the Nuremberg trials where Senator Jesse Helms, President a- Presidential AIDS Commission member Corey Servas, an anonymous surgeon, televangelist Jerry Falwell, columnist William F. Buckley Jr., and President Ronald Reagan. So these were six people that um, were quoted in the media who had said, you know, had come out sort of just... Dismissing AIDS is something that's like a gay community problem, and you know, no one cares. Mm. You know, Regan was not interested in helping gay people, right? People's again, heavily criminalized. People saw it as sort of divine retribution, right? Very deeply homophobic and transphobic. Uh, Reagan. Reagan, thank you. Oh, yeah. So this was done in a window space, like in New York. So this would have been in a shop window that people walking by would have had to see. Um, it wasn't like confined in a gallery or anything like that. It was on like basically on the street. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and after this piece, uh, the members who did it got together, founded Grand Fury. Um, they purposely intervened into public spaces. Uh, a lot of what they did was based on advertising. Um, so, like, techniques of advertising or mimicking uh, actual ad campaigns to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal was to, again, sort of fight this, like, silence, um, 
fight these like this like uh, homophobic repression of gay culture and also to increase visibility um grand fury is the group that originated the infamous pink triangle with silence equals death mm-hmm. um so they that was sort of their main focus was these very like eye-catching highly visible sort of advertisement style pieces right um the other grand fury did a lot of work but the other piece i really want to highlight from grand fury is their 1989 kissing doesn't kill campaign Mm -hmm. um this was a campaign that included a lot of different pieces it began as mass mailings so postcards that they mass mailed to people um that were designed to look like a popular clothing campaign i'm not sure what's popular clothing campaign i couldn't figure that out but um the idea was that like they looked like something you would be getting from a legitimate source quote unquote so people would actually pick it up and look at it and then see what the actual message was right and Mm. um it was images of people like gay men lesbians uh and i think they actually also had a straight couple and they're kissing uh with the text kissing doesn't kill um, and the subtitle was Kissing Doesn't Kill, Greed and Indifference Do. Yes. Kissing Doesn't Kill, Greed and Indifference Do. And then on the back of the postcard, they had like information, right? It says corporate uh, greed, government inaction, and public indifference make AIDS a political crisis. Yes. And again, for context. They have a straight couple here, but it looks like it's an interracial couple. Yes. Yeah. So that's also a huge thing here, too, right? Is remember that. Um, up until extremely recently, interracial couples were also criminalized mm-hmm. and considered, even when it was legal, it was considered very taboo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, an ad ran in the early 2000s that featured an interracial couple and people lost their mind. So, like, mm-hmm. really recent, right? Mm-hmm. So, the other context here, right, is that, again, Gay people were blamed for AIDS. It was seen as being caused by gay sex, gay kissing, um, which was, again, you know, criminalized, considered indecent behavior. Um, so by f- having these, like, big visible images of queer and interracial couples kissing, that is that was a hugely disruptive visual to have in a public space. Um, so in addition to the mass mailings, they also ran campaigns where they put them on posters in public. They ran them on bus ads in Chicago, New York, and San Francisco. Um, again, like putting these images into the public space so that people would actually be confronted by them um, and sort of counter the invisibility and the misinformation, the homophobic uh, repression and misinformation that the government was partaking in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Grand Fury also did kissins along with this, which I just love. So the kissins were just uh, <laughs> kissins were just like big demonstrations where you know LGBTQ people and also straight people would like all get together and protest, but it was literally just they would hang out and like kiss each other, <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, again, to draw attention, to disrupt, um, I just love that as, like, a form of activism is, like, get together and, like, kiss your friends or whatever. And, like, that's <laughs> such a cool idea. Um, so, again, and, and then Grand Fury dissolved in um, the 90s in, let me pull up the exact date. They, um, 
Yeah, so they, by the mid-1990s, in 1995, they officially dissolved as a group. They published a final piece called Good Luck, dot, 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 Miss You, Grand Fury, that was basically like a manifesto of their dissolution, explaining that because the atmosphere around the epidemic had changed, the tactics they were using were no longer the best way to communicate what they wanted to communicate. Mm. Um, Which... Again, I think is really interesting as a model of like art as activism because this was, again, art that was designed to be activist in the sense that it was disruptive. It confronted people. um, It forced conversations that uh, the mainstream didn't want to have, that like the heterosexual world didn't want to have. But then they reached a point where they were like, these conversations are happening without us. So this style of work doesn't do what we need it to do anymore Mm. um and and so i think that sort of like agility is also really interesting um they produced a lot of work uh i i'm gonna drop a link the new york public library has a digital archive that is open to the public of grand fury's work um there is also in person if you live in new york you can request an in-person um appointment to look at this material um, I'm not sure what the requirements are for that. I think that it it there's things because of COVID, but um, that is a thing that you can do. Um, or you can look at it online, which I think is amazing that they have all of this up online. So they have a series of their artwork, posters, things like that. They have a series of administrative files, uh, which is like, you know, plans, awards, letters, press releases, stuff like that. Um then they have, let me go to the overview again. They also have two boxes of publications, so books, exhibition catalogs, press clippings about their work, responding to their work. And then they have sound and video recordings. Um, so the AIDS, AIDS activists were also really, I didn't, I'm not talking about this because um, I focused more on like print. Mm-hmm. excuse me on print artwork but one of the things that was really big is that this was also around the era that handheld cameras became more widely available um and aids activists were incredibly conscientious about video recording their work right so we have this wealth of archival video footage of protests of interviews with people that were active during the movement um in a way that is was different from earlier activist movements, um, which is, I think, extremely cool. Um, it looks like Grand Fury has a website. Yes. And it looks like they have documentation of shows up to 2018. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily new work. I think they're just showing work. Yeah, they do retrospectives. Um, Act Up does retrospectives as well, like with Grand Fury. So, um, like, you know, there's still folks that were involved in Grand Fury who are still alive, right? Who are still artists and like mm-hmm. making work and things like that. Um, so you definitely can find a lot online, which is really nice. Um, I mean, I like that it's not, um, it's still people who are, who live during that time who continue to share with their work and not just, um, I don't know, museums taking advantage of yes. histories. Yeah, and I do think that's important, right, is that Grand Fury did do some museum work. Um, They actually have a very famous um, controversial piece called the Pope piece, Mm. uh, which 
was exhibited at the 44th Venice Biennial. So they have done they have done work in uh, more traditional like art spaces, but the work that they have done in those more traditional art spaces, again, designed to be disruptive, designed to be controversial, and thus be spread outside of those spaces because people are reporting on it because it's controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, again, some really interesting tactics, I think. Um, I really appreciate, I really like that grassroots um, disruptive tactic. I think that's really important um, yeah. to look at cool. as a model. Yeah. Um, so those were the two non-art piece or non-comics pieces I wanted to highlight. Again, there's so much more stuff out there. Um, I could talk forever about it, but <laughs> you could teach um, a class. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but I did want to because we're a comics podcast, and because again, the question of like comics and activism has come up, I wanted to highlight uh, two different comics um, that have sort of very different origins um but i think are both really valuable so the first is um strip aids and strip aids usa Mm. um so these are comics anthologies strip aids was published in 1987 in the uk uh and then strip aids usa was published in 1998 by uh last gasp press i believe which Mm. is an underground comics publisher so we see sort of this connection between grassroots publications and organizing by queer activists right meeting the grassroots underground comics publishing right which a lot of queer people were making comics during the underground right we've talked Mm. about that a little bit um so i'm not going to talk as much about strip aids the original the uk version um I'll tell you, it was edited by Don Melia. Proceeds went to London Lighthouse, which was England's England's first residential and J-care facility for people with AIDS. And there's 56 pages of comics. Um, I'm not going to read all the contributors. You can look that up if you're interested in online. Um, But uh, the idea for both of these was that they were anthologies, artists, comic artists from all places in the industry. So people who were working on monthly superhero comics, people that were doing underground, uh, creator-owned, like everyone, right, right, regardless of where you were in the industry, came together, contributed a short comic, the anthology was published, and proceeds from the anthology went to a cause to support AIDS, right? Um, I see the Hernandez brothers, Trina mm-hmm. Robbins. So that's um, in Strip AIDS USA, yeah. Yeah, along with, like... Frank Miller, who will I yeah. Um so pretty big names. Yeah. But it looks like there's like uh, like a hundred contributors or something. Yeah, so Strip AIDS USA was a little bit bigger and I think gained a little bit more notoriety than the original Strip AIDS. Like it's a lot harder to find a copy of the original mm. Strip AIDS. <laughs> I have a copy of Strip AIDS USA. Uh show off. <laughs> so it was edited by Trina Robbins. Uh, and Bill uh, Sienkiewicz with Robert Triptow. Um, so all three of those were comic artists working more in the underground, um, to my understanding. Um, Trina met Don Melia 
saw the anthology and was inspired to do a version of it in the U.S., right? Mm. Um, the proceeds from Strip Aves USA went to Shanti Project, which is a San Francisco-based human rights agency that served people with AIDS. Um, and there was 136 pages of comics in this one. Um, so like I said, I have a copy. Uh, and yeah, the creators list is really long. It's a It's a huge mix of people from all different parts of the industry like kathy said um i feel like you highlighted the people that are the most (laughs) that are like maybe the most well known to highlight but yeah so a huge variety of like type of work a huge variety of harvey picard was in it um like a Mm -hmm. huge variety and um most of the comics are more uh i would say like educational in nature like this was very much designed to be sold to folks who maybe weren't directly impacted by the AIDS epidemic or, like, weren't aware, right, who weren't part mm-hmm. of the gay community. Um, so a lot of the content is sort of focused on education um, to try to, like, reduce stigma. Like, the back of the book has a big Will Eisner drawing of the spirits um with a speech bubble that says victim of aids need help not rejection behind a post behind him is a poster that says learn the truth about aids before it's too late um mm. so again sort of a, a big focus on that kind of work there is some comics in here that are more like from the direct perspective of you know queer people that were impacted obviously some of these contributors were gay but that's to me this isn't these are interesting projects because they're like i feel like i don't think it's the first but i'm pretty sure these are really early examples of the model of like a publisher making an an anthology to raise money for a cause which is a thing that we still do right like there was puerto rico strong comics for choice comics for choice the for uh, abortion rights that hazel nuvalent put together Um, Yes. And I believe there's going to be a second one now inspired by the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah. So this is a model that people still do, right? This idea of, you know, you come together, you make something, you're not necessarily like paid for your contribution, but the goal is to make art that you can use to raise money to give to a cause, right? Um, To directly help people. And I, I, like I said, I, I, I don't want to say it's the first because I could be wrong about that. But I do think this is a really early example of that kind of work in comics. And I think, I think it's really interesting. Um, it is a little harder to like. You can still get copies of it. Uh, they're not still in production, but lots of folks sell them online used. There are some very. There's a lot also of a uh, sex education style comics in here because a lot of. This is getting in the the weeds a little bit, so I'm not going to get too deep into it, but there's sort of a split in the kinds of um, AIDS activism (laughs) that occurs uh, in, like, the late late 80s into the 90s around focusing on safer sex practices, and that Mm. became a huge cornerstone, right? So the importance of condoms, the importance of – as, like, a preventative measure, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that was sort of alongside the more radical – and I don't want to say I'm not I don't mean more radical as in like free condoms. It wasn't radical because like that was super radical at the time, right? 
uh, sex education for gay people super radical because it wasn't discussed because it was illegal, right? Um, but when I say radical, I mean like politically leftist, like focused on abolition, focused on uh, dissol- like trying to combat the nuclear, like d- ab- abolish the nuclear family as like the unit of, um, as like the base unit in society, that kind of thing. Mm. And the 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 second comic I'm going to talk about, I think, isn't an activist piece, although the artist who worked on it was an activist himself, um, but I think politically falls more into that second camp. Um, and this is the one, this comic, it, <laughs> this comic makes me emotional. So Seven Miles a Second uh, by David Wonorovich. Uh, who lots of people know David Wonorovich because he is the person wearing the "If I Die, Dump My Bodies on the Step of the FDA" jacket mm-hmm. um, that went viral, has gone viral a few times. Wonorovich was an artist, uh, primarily like fine art, performance art. He also wrote a lot. He was also an activist, you know, heavily involved in ACT UP, heavily involved in queer activism. Seven Miles a Second, he wrote, he worked on this with uh, James Romberger and Marguerite Van Cook, who were friends of his, also in the art world. They knew each other through, like, a gallery space, I believe, that the Rombergers, the Rombergers, uh, James Romberger and Marguerite Van Cook are married, so. Mm. Um, And so David Wonorovich wrote it, and then James drew it based on David's writing, and then Marguerite Van Cook was the colorist. Seven Miles a Second was written the last year before Wonorovich's death in 1992, and it was finished posthumously. So the fr- it, the book is broken down into three seconds sections. The first two sections David Wonorovich actively wrote and collaborated with uh, James and Marguerite on. After his death, they finished the third part without him. It was originally published in 1996 by Vertigo Comics, uh, the imprint of DC. Um, And then it was republished in 2013, or reprinted, rather, in 2013 by Fantagraphics. So uh, most, like, the easiest copy to get a hold of these days is the 2013 reprint. Um, I believe it was reprinted because they were doing a retrospective. Not Fantagraphics, but there was a gallery doing a retrospective on Ronorovix, and they wanted to reprint the comic because mm. um, Vertigo is no more. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Also, it's interesting uh, because so a huge thing in this book is is the colors. Marguerite Van Cook did like watercolors for the work, and it's beautiful work. The Vertigo version, they recolored her work. Um, oh. to to match the like weird '90s Vertigo house style. You know how like '90s superhero comics use those like weird gradients to color. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> like comics from this period. Oh, I want to correct myself. Apparently, Vertigo is still publishing stuff. Oh, so. I thought they. I guess maybe they were threat. Threat. Oh, maybe they came back. It that was it. Gerard- DC Vertigo. Current DC yeah. Vertigo series. Yeah. But they ch- um, it looks like they changed the name to DC Vertigo. 
Right. And I think Gerard Way is like in charge of it now or something. The next is... generation of DC Vertigo begins here. It looks like it might be recent. Look, we aren't. I was about to say we aren't comics historians, but I guess technically we're supposed to be. <laughs> we are. But superhero. Uh, well, Vertigo isn't superheroes, really. But DC and Marvel are sort of it's out of mind. Just a little too ag- <laughs> adjacent for our tastes. Yeah. Right, sorry. Go on. I just wanted to uh-huh. do real time collect- uh, correction. But they no, recolored it. I hate that. <laughs> Yeah, no, and the colors were bad. Like, you can find online, like, scans of the Vertigo version, and it sucks. So I do recommend the Fantagraphics version because they preserved the original color work, um, which I think contributes so much to the book. Like, just, like, a perfect example of colorists being important. Anyway, um, Wonorovich wanted to do a comic because he felt that would be a more accessible art medium um, for people. So he wanted this to be something that was widely read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he also has written a bunch of memoirs that you can read. Um, Seven Miles a Second, again, it's not an activist art piece, right? Um, it is sort of an autobiography. Um, the first part is about Wonorovich's life as a teenager, Uh he was, you know, as like a sort of um, houseless sex worker um, and his experiences with that. And then the second part is um, him as sort of a young adult. And then the third part, again, which they completed uh, posthumously, draws from his diary. Um, so while the first two parts feel more like traditional comic-y with like speech bubbles and stuff like that, um, the the last part is like in comics format. It's very much still a comic, but they are taking sections of one of Robich's diary and illustrate, excuse me, and illustrating them mm. um, to try to complete the piece in the way that they felt like, you know, what w- preserved what one Robich wanted. It's it's an interesting piece for me because I think it raises a lot of interesting. Um, ideas around like that sort of like posthumous collaboration. Um, uh, James Romberger, Marguerite Van Cook, and David Winovich were friends, right? Like they knew each other; they were friends. Um, so you know, there's very much this sense of like this is being done by people who are also mourning their friends, mm-hmm. right? While they are trying to like preserve his vision, and it is interesting because they changed the ending that what Rovich had originally planned. Um, and I think, I, I don't know. It is, it is, it is, a, I will say if you are interested in reading it, it is extremely heavy. Um, there is some depictions of like uh, violence, uh, underage sex work, assault. So like definitely, t- t- I think it's a piece that like really deserves to be like, have time taken with it. And also to like, you know, if if you are a person who is, like, uh, triggered by that content, definitely do the preparation work that you need to do if you want to engage with it. Um, but it is, I think, maybe one of the most important comics I've ever read. Uh, mm. I do get, like, really choked up about it because Wonorovich, what Wonorovich does that's, I think that particularly like valuable to me is that he's not interested in educating. So you know how I said like strip AIDS was kind of written for an audience that wasn't super familiar with AIDS. And so there's a right. lot of like education in there. Wonorovich is 
talking he's he very much is like expressing his feelings about dying Mm. and he is not in any way shape or form trying to make that palatable you know like he is not trying Mm -hmm. to make that like he's not interested in in writing in a way that people who maybe aren't part of the community are being handheld right it there's no ish interest in relatability there's no interest in being um what's the word uh uh not pedantic didactic mm-hmm. um and i think that is really important as a cultural artifact because a lot of work you know a lot of work that comes out of this era was was interested in that sort of and i'm not saying like everything obviously there's a lot of stuff that was made by the community for the community but like stuff that was more widely spread or like written to be more widely spread often did take a more like and the stigma by educating right Mm -hmm. and the stigma by like explaining and i think having this piece of someone who is just I, th- I think Fantagraphics, I forget, I read somewhere someone described it a primal scream of a graphic novel. Um, yeah, and that's it's just... the, I'm looking at the Queer Comics database, yeah. and that's how they, um, that's their d- synopsis. Yeah, and I think, I just think that's such a, such an important thing to also have this kind of work that is is meant to be read right read widely like isn't meant to be closed to the community because i think that's a very different like intention right when someone is making something for a specific community um but is also sort of refusing to make itself palatable in any way right can i read this review from yeah weekly of course um originally published in 1996 wanarovich's impressionistic memoir is the story of his hustling on the streets of new york in the early 1970s and then 20 years later being stricken with aids in the face of a society reacting with a mixture of horror and indifference the offer's prose is poetic arriving with a light touch while delivering a heavy dark and understandably understandably angry message part of what makes the book unusual is that it does not go out of its way to be uplifting it is for once not about silver linings it's about having lived a very hard life paying a very heavy price for it and then being hated and reviled for it wanarovich's brutal hopelessness has a jarring clarity there's no denying that his sometimes hallucinatory depiction of an uncomfortable reality is all the more convincing for his refusal to pull punches Wanarovich was a successful artist, but a life bookended by poverty and AIDS is in a nation often indifferent to both is hardly a recipe for happiness. Romberger and Van Cook's art is hyperactive with splattery color that suggests the out-of-body acid trip world of a contradictory values and constantly sh- shifting danger that Wanarovich lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and... Here, I want to actually pull this up real quick. I have a. It, yeah, and I think he just. That's a really beautiful summary of it. Thank you for reading that. Um, Mm. Because, again, I think, like I said, the sheer. The loss of life, the loss of culture, 
um, that the community that suffered, right, as a result of the AIDS epidemic and um, the mishandling of it, um, I think is like, this is a book that really helps put that in perspective because it Mm -hmm. is so much about this person's experience of dying a, a death that maybe isn't preventable but definitely could have been a lot less isolating and painful than it had to be um mm-hmm. if i can i would love to actually read one tiny section of it if you're okay with that go for it okay so this is from the part three so again this is uh one of our witch's diary um and this is one of the more famous spreads it's a two-page spread, large image of Wonorovich. Um, uh, the su- sort of a. Was, I'm trying to remember the name of the basilica. Let me just act up. Die in same path. Okay, so it's an image of Wonorovich, uh, the su- taller than the buildings in New York. Uh, so like extremely large and he's sort of destroying like punching and kicking through St. Patrick's Cathedral which is the site of actually a a die-in that ACT UP hosted um, Mm. because the Catholic Church also played quite a strong role in sort of perpetuating a lot of homophobic ideas about AIDS, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this large image of Wonovrovich destroying the cathedral and next to that is this text... And I'm carrying this rage like a blood-filled egg, and there's a thin line between the inside and the outside, a thin line between thought and action, and that line is simply made up of blood and muscle and bone, and as each T-cell disappears from my body, it's replaced by 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage, and I focus that rage into nonviolent resistance, but that focus is starting to slip. My hands are beginning to move independently, and the egg is starting to crack. And America seems to accept murder as self-defense against those who would murder you. And it's been murder on a daily basis for fourteen, for ten, count them, ten long years. And we're expected to pay taxes to support this public and social murder. And we're expected to quietly and politely make house in this windstorm of murder. But I say there's certain politicians that better get more complex security alarms. And there's religious figures and healthcare officials that had better get... Sorry, I'm going to do a... There's a couple curses in here. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Um that had better get bigger fucking dogs and higher fucking fences and queer bashers better start doing their work from inside Houtzer tanks because the thin line between the inside and the outside is beginning to erode. And at this moment, I am a 370 foot tall, 1100,000 pound man inside this six foot frame. And all I can feel is the pressure and all I can feel is the pressure and the need for release. Um. So I wanted to read that as sort of an example of the kind of writing that's in the book. And also, again, the thing that makes it so powerful for me is that it's capturing this very human anger. And I think culturally in the U.S., we struggle a lot with anger and particularly anger by marginalized people, right, is often treated Mm -hmm. as negative, right? Um, 
as something that is unobjective or not helpful. And so I, I think having counterexamples of where you're not trying to justify or make nice or um, do anything, but just express the 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 true depth of feeling that being in that situation um being forced to live through that experience of state-sanctioned murder i think one of which is right um i don't know it's just really it's a it's something that really affects me it's maybe my favorite comic um and so i i just really wanted to like highlight it as a really important piece to come out of this era thank you those are the four things I wanted to highlight. <laughs> but well, uh, perfect timing. We are exactly at an hour. Thank you for sharing that with us. The mm-hmm. so this is artwork that was shared and created at, in as activism mm-hmm. during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, in the U.S. Um, how would you say the uh, it, it continues? into the 90s, into the 2000s? Is there a legacy? Definitely. Um, a lot of... If you look at a lot of activism strategies broadly, um, not just queer activism, um, a lot does, I think, originate... Or not originate, but definitely like carry the resonances of like the use of digital recording, right? um and preservation and and again i don't want to like make it sound like queer people are the only people doing this because you also see this in like the civil rights movement right you also see this with like the black panther group which a lot of queer activists were either part of or working closely with right like Mm -hmm. there's all these overlaps right between these different groups but um what aids activism really has is this like this desire from within the community to archive to preserve because mm-hmm. there because people knew they were dying right there was this sense of urgency because th- prior to the 90s like prior to AZT and when they started actually being sort of breakthroughs with health it was a death sentence so there was this real like understanding of urgency and the need to protect the legacy and the need to record and preserve knowledge and pass it on um because like you had to Mm -hmm. right that was what you had um and and i think what's changed is that like in the 90s and we actually sort of talked about this in the queer episode the 90s is when like the idea of queer kind of gets reclaimed as this political term right that has this like particular political um meaning to it and uh you also sort of see like queer studies pop up in academia as folks that were part of the gay community and involved in aids activism are getting into grad school and you know going and like you know taking that that community knowledge with them like there is this strong back and forth and like um you know, I think, I think th- th- it's interesting the ways that it has impacted us because a lot of the ways I feel like are almost like by its absence. I think something I feel very deeply again is being a you know a queer trans person who I was born in '93, so pre the advent of AZT, but um, uh, I 
you know, was born in Florida. My parents were straight. They weren't involved in the gay community. Like, I wasn't aware of the AIDS epidemic at all until I wasn't, like, you know, a teenager. And even then, it was, like, very much not deeply talked about, right? So there's this... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just thinking about um, how we would have found out about this stuff. And I'm thinking of, like, rent, of, like, theater work that is... uh, uh, like translated through different lenses and sort of it dissolves its original intention mm-hmm. into uh, something that's palatable for a mainstream audience. But then when you dig deeper, uh, you find more of the truth of what had happened. Right. Yeah. If you, I mean, Rent is a great example because I actually think Rent probably was where I first learned about <laughs> the AIDS epidemic because <laughs> yeah. I was really into musical theater as a teenager. And, and what's the history of Rent? Isn't wasn't it originally by a book written by black lesbians that was then adapted by like a white cis male straight man? It's complicated. I don't actually know the full story, but I believe actually the short story that Jonathan Larson either stole or based on hard to say um uh was sarah shulman um and sarah shulman is also the author of conflict is not abuse um she was you know involved in aids activism she or um she is an aids historian um i think she has done a lot of valuable work she also is one of the people who or has put together uh the act up oral history project which i also want to shout out as this is a digital publicly available archive that is just hours and hours and hours of interviews with people that were alive during the aids crisis um so Sarah Shulman is great and important. She does sometimes do stuff where I'm like, she's a little litigious sometimes. So <laughs> she alleges that Rent is based on one of her short stories or that like Larson stole the idea from one of her short stories. That may be totally true. You know, I believe I would be willing to believe it. I just also have sometimes seen Sarah Shulman do stuff where I'm like, I think you're reaching. And since I haven't read the short story in question, I don't know, basically. Mm, okay. But Rent is another... Of... Go ahead. It is... Oh, I was just going to say Rent is an interesting one because, I mean, Larson was straight. That is important. I do think it's problematic that the main characters of... The main audience characters, like the... This is an ensemble, but like, you know, Mark and Roger are like the main characters and they're both white cishet men. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's challenging, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm, I'm like looking at his article. I can't tell. He, he, was he straight? He's straight. He was straight. He did also, the thing about Jonathan Larson is that he actually passed away like the day that Rent was going to open. Yeah. Um, he died pretty early. He died at and 36. I bl- yeah. And it was very tragic. And it does also mean that 35. I think there was a bit it was a bit there was a bit of difficulty in raising any criticism against rent because um of the right. tragic passing of the man who wrote it so um but yeah, yeah rent is rent is a whole thing um but anyway yeah like there's <laughs> these there's all these like mainstream like and the band plays on is another like movie that was about the aids crisis right that's like 
it, it's like wild the stuff that is like mainstream and then if you actually like again part of the reason i wanted to do this was to highlight where you can actually find primary material right right um because again a lot of aids activists and aids historians and like gay activists have put a lot of work into preserving and digitizing and now making publicly available this material um and i think it's really important to sort of spread that as much as i can because it's not stuff that you're gonna organically encounter in the u.s education system unless you get very lucky and have a very radical teacher i feel like you'll get the image of the silence equals death act up in your textbook right you'll you'll have that image you'll have a sentence or two that says about the aids epidemic and then i feel like it'll move on a lot like the way black panthers are also taught and a lot of this radical history is taught where it's just one little footnote and then you spend um weeks talking about uh some a war or something right and then the government is like idealized or like valorized as the ones that fix the problem like the fda gets so much credit for azt when like it was the gay community pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing yeah you know and like again it's it's very as a person who sort of queer history queer studies are my research focus I'm so deeply aware of this gap in community history, in intergenerational history, where not to say that, it, again, it's not gone forever. A lot of it is preserved, and there are people who did grow up with people who were personally affected by the AIDS crisis, right? So I'm not saying it's like, but there is this deep, deep gap where this material, where like culture, people like, people our elders were take it from us and it's really i see a lot of conversations that i see in younger queer groups it's always so interesting because it's always stuff that i'm like this is a conversation that happened 40 years ago and it's just that we don't have the shared knowledge. We don't have the intergenerational knowledge to build on, you know? And and so, I don't know. I think about that a lot. It, it definitely informs the way I think about what I write about and the work that I do. Um, and yeah, it's, mm-hmm. you know. I'm thinking about moving into our conclusion segment. What, uh, what are our takeaways? How do we I feel like that forward? was my conclusion. <laughs> Um, but like how do we move forward yeah i would say i mean again one of my goals is to share as much as possible um where you can access these materials um so that folks can hopefully go look at them and spend some time with that history and also share it with their community because i feel like that is something that i i want us to do and when i say us i mean like the queer community not like me and you specifically kathy but like (laughs) we're um, doing stuff we're doing stuff but like i want i want to see more resource sharing in that way you know we we do we do for better or worse live in a time where there's a lot of stuff available online um and obviously the internet isn't accessible to everyone uh so i'm not saying that's a panacea but if you are listening to this on a computer you have or a phone you you probably can go to like 
the digital archive and look at it, right? Like, um, or like go to a library. Again, libraries, great, have lots of stuff. Um, I also want to highlight, it's supposed to come out this year, but I'm not actually sure, but um, JSTOR uh, is, uh, we're doing a lot of work with these um, archival collections. Like there's been a big focus on, um, uploading and encouraging like institutions to upload like archival material on JSTOR, um, mm. which is super cool because a lot of it is open access, which means that anyone can go look at it. Um, and a lot, of, like we've talked about, a lot of the like issue with archival material is that it lives in these closed off physical locations that are difficult to gain access to. Um, and we are in the process of funding so that we can open up an open access collection called HIV AIDS in the arts. Um, that is a collection of global visual, like arts made by AIDS activists in response to the crisis. Um, and it, like I said, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to, I think it was supposed to have opened in 2022. I think it's more likely it's going to start, like it's going to become open in 2023. Um, but the scope of it is going to preserve approximately 75,000 pages and items of primary source uh, sources in all art forms whenever possible, sheet music, manuscripts, playbills and production notes, all manner of visual arts, as well as the personal papers of lesser-known artists of all types. And they are focusing on trans artists, women artists, and uh, Black and Indigenous uh, peoples of color. Um, so, like, I think this is going to be a really important collection, and I'm very excited for it to be publicly available to everyone. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for bringing this history to us remus yeah thank you for letting me this is a top this is one of my favorite things to talk about because i think it's mm -hmm. really important so yeah. it is really important um so if you would like to write to us um we would be so happy to get your emails you can send letters to drawing a dialogue at gmail.com you're also welcome to tweet us at draw a dialogue on twitter um you can, I want to say thank you to the Downtown Boys uh, for the use of their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. You can um, go over to drawingadialogue.com to look at the citations for this podcast. Definitely look at this episode's citations because we're going to have links to the archives that are online. Yeah, please look at, this, look at this material. Look at this visual artwork. It's very powerful. I almost started yeah. crying just talking in the last hour. So, Oh, same. Um, I'm so close to crying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so please, please click those, please click those links. Yeah, and Drawing a Dialogue is hosted on comicarted.com, which is Kathy's amazing um, comic art education website. You're so kind. Um, mm -hmm. If you, I do teach uh, kids workshops uh, around uh, libraries. If you're a librarian or you're a teacher, um, please uh, hit me up. I really enjoy doing comic workshops. I just did a zine one which was so fun. No one's invited oh. me to do a zine one yet. And it was so much fun to talk about zines. And I brought all this like radical material and like it was for teens and we made zines Ugh. together. We made three zines together. 
Oh, like, I love that. It was awesome. Um, so invite me to come teach some zine workshops. That was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, so you can follow the podcast on Twitter at uh, uh, draw a dialogue. So it's same as our email minus the ing because there was character limits. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Remus Maurice, which is R-E-M-U-S-M-A-U-R-I-C-E. Um, and I want to say, if you do follow the pod podcast on Twitter, you can turn on notifications for the pot for our Twitter because I, I'm the one who kind of runs it. Um, I don't really post unless we have like a new episode. So like. I think it would be uh, we. I'm not going to spam your notifications if you turn them on. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We're um, not like tweeting on there. It's it's mostly just a hey, this episode is here. <laughs> yeah, and like a, a place for people to give us feedback. Um, yeah, on the p- episodes, which is it's really nice to see uh, people uh, resonating with episodes. It's really cool. Um, yeah. and then you can follow me at. Kathy G. John, which is C-A-T-H-Y-J-G-J-O-H-N. And you can co- follow Comic Art Ed at Comic Art Ed, too, by the way. Nice. I have a Twitter and a Instagram for that, which is also... It exists just to be very casual, so... So, Remus, what are you reading? Yes. So I... Uh, in the old-style tradition where I don't talk about a book... Um, <laughs> I've, I I uh, I actually uh, recently watched Being John Malkovich. Um, oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, it's been on my list a for a really long time, and I had just not gotten around to it. And I thought I knew what it was about. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I had the basic premise right, but like, I was so unprepared for how queer it is. Um, Mm. like, wow, what a trans movie (laughs) that is. Um, so I had a phenomenal time. I feel like I'm still such, one, like, again, the sort of queerness of it, which was so fascinating. And then two, the, like, the deeply concerning ethical quandary it presents. Mm. and refuses to resolve i am like i was into it i had a great time (laughs) you know the puppets yeah i met that puppeteer who did all the being john melchevich puppetry um, yeah that got like cut in with john cusack his name is john cusack right who's in that movie yeah it was yeah it was cusack um so cusack is just pretending obviously and there's like a very famous marionette guy um i met him when i was a teenager at the puppeteers of america conference and Mm -hmm. it was like i I was thinking about how i i just like met the most famous (laughs) puppeteer like Uh i was like oh like like this is it was very casual i was working for a puppet puppet um theater at the time and Mm -hmm. so we were doing an event and i helped build a build a giant puppet for like sort of the opening ceremonies and it just was like i was like you know there's some extremely famous people in these niche things Mm -hmm. all over all over the world and they are not extremely famous (laughs) in any other context (laughs) yeah 
which is a subplot in the movie, funnily enough. But um, that is, <laughs> I haven't watched a- it in a long time. It's, yeah, it, I mean, God, wow. I'm kind of glad I didn't watch it when I was younger because I don't know if it would have resonated the same way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, although I do think it would have maybe fundamentally altered my brain chemistry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, he was a, listen, that puppeting, phenomenal. Great yeah, it puppeting. is. It's very <laughs> so. impressive. Yeah, I watched him do it live. It's incredible. I mean, he has like, I watched him do like a horse. He has like a horse and it has like four different fancy armatures that with wow. like, like 60 strings. Like it's incredible. Like, Jeez. but, but you're watching just like a horse, like walk and flick its ears and flick its tail. And you're mm-hmm. just like, that's, that's a horse. You know, <laughs> puppeting. <laughs> I always, okay. It's so funny to me because when I was, I was always really into the idea of puppeting. Like I really always wanted to get into it when I was a kid. Um, I, I almost, I don't even think I ended up applying in the end, but I did really consider going to um, CalArts specifically because they had like a puppeting minor that I was interested in. Um, And then I just, for whatever reason, never did it. I've never made a puppet. I just think it would be fun. So I've made made a bunch. Um, I think I find, uh, we're off on a tangent at the moment. Um, Uh... I'm doing a stop motion class right now. Yeah. So um, I'm like in the middle of a stop motion animation that I paused to record this podcast. Um, so that is like involves puppets too. Um, nice. Um, I don't know. I've done puppets. I worked in theater for a while. I still do puppets. I've made puppets for nonprofits. Like I made a couple of puppets for um my uh, a pro- non-profit that my aunt works for that um or maybe it's just like a city i don't think it's a non-profit i think it's just like a program a city program uh for adults with disabilities uh mental disabilities um mm-hmm. because or cognitive disabilities uh because puppets like for people who are on stage and want to do a performance but like feel uncomfortable being watched it's a way of like not having you being the focus of a performance like you're mm-hmm. the puppet is the focus um so you're sense. able to be on stage without being the subject which i think is like an interesting uh just kind of a fun way of participating in something where you aren't going to be the one who's watched but you're still on stage yeah um, yeah and that that ended up being like a really uh beneficial thing uh for the population that she works with and every once every few years i get called upon to fix the puppets that i made oh that's so cool (laughs) i know it's fun right i think i went to school for uh for sculpture so i ended up doing puppets because it was a way of doing sculpture that still told a story because ultimately i am a storyteller which sounds pompous but i just made i like I'm more interested in uh, comics and books and telling stories rather than like a singular sculpture. So I ended up doing a lot of puppets. Um, awesome. Well, anyway, to... oh, segueing. What have you been reading? Yeah, I had a couple things. So I wanted to share this uh, manga series I'm reading. But then, as you were talking, I thought of something else. So I went and grabbed it before we did the segment. But um. I have been reading... Have I talked about My Love Mix-Up yet? You haven't. I don't think so. 
Um, so my love mix-up with art by Aruko and story by Watori Hinakura is a shoujo manga. So it's published by Shoujo Beat here in America, which is a division of Viz Media. Um, so it's a shoujo manga that starts out as a shoujo romance, and then it slowly turns into, which are normally straight romances, and then it t- turns into boys' love, um, which is really... It's oh, it's so cute and fun, and I really adore it. I really enjoy um, that it's not it's stuck into. I like that. It, I like that it's a shoujo genre, gay story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's nice. Not that being boys' love is a problem, but I just think it's nice that I, I also enjoy shoujo romances. So yeah, no, um, that's sweet. I would say that's a that's a current boys love story that's being published. The fourth book just came out in the U.S. Um, that nice. I really quite enjoy. So if you want something very cute, uh, that's the one you should go for, in my opinion. And I <laughs> am the authority. Um, you are. That's true. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the other book I was thinking about was I got the zine. I'm sure I've talked about this zine before, but there's a new issue out um, by Arthur K. Um, uh, it's a new rot, uh, which is a oh, zine yeah. series that Arthur's been doing for a long time. Uh, number eleven is out now, and the reason I thought of it is that, um, sort of the beginning of the zine, uh, it, it's a it sort of acts as a memorial, and so this is self published mm. zine. This is self published work. Um, there's like a illustration of a flower, and it says "Meet me in the next world." And then it, there's a list of names of people who've passed away. Um, and then uh, I'm going to read uh, sort of the summary that's on the inside cover. Um, the zine is about many things, but especially the grief and violence, personal and collective of modern life in a dying planet written in so-called U.S. America on stolen land in the unhealed aftermath of slavery, the fake forced peace repression um can't read that world word uh um following the george floyd uprising returning to labor fighting depression trying to keep chaos desire and connection alive losing friends every month and getting hurt and trying to heal um uh heavy thoughts read with care thank you for coming Mm -hmm. um it's just like the there's still a uh, queer documentation happening mm-hmm. currently of pandemics of violence um, that is being published outside of the mainstream um, mm-hmm. that is important and valuable. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a perfect note to sort of end on. Yeah. And I think um, if you... Email damp xerox d a m p x e r o x at gmail dot com. You could probably get a copy yourself. You're not going to be able to find it on like a web store or anything like that. But you could email right. them and they'll mail it to you probably. Nice. Um. Awesome. Um. Well, thank you so much for this um powerful episode, Remus. And uh, thank you uh, for listening. This has been Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. Solidarity for you.